A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to episode 68 of What Most People Think. I am recording this intro on Thursday night, Thursday the 17th of December. We've got we've got more new people going up into tier three. Solidarity with all my tier three comrades there. Big shout going out to Bedfordshire, Hertfordshire, <laughs> Surrey, apart from Waverley for reasons that I don't understand. I don't know what's going on in Waverley there. The fucking some weird mutant strain of pensioner that is somehow immune to all this stuff. But um, it's all starting, isn't it? Of course, we all knew that this was going to happen. Is that we, 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 we're not going to get the Christmas that we were promised. We can't, we can't have that. After this year where we've had so much taken away from us, we, did, we had this five days where we, we would be able to... Sort of see our families, but even that, even that could be too much. And uh, well, the government have stressed that we all need to exercise personal responsibility. And you should, the reaction to that idea was astonishing. It was like, I mean, it's been a rough year generally for personal responsibility, hasn't it? It's sort of what was what was once a mainstay of all the bedrock of political thought was that citizens should broadly just not act like fucking idiots. But now it gets mentioned. Everyone's like, what? It, it doesn't compute. It's like this mad batshit batshit idea that Gwyneth Paltrow's peddling. I guess this is what happens when you signed 3,064 Apple updated terms and conditions without reading a single thing, isn't it? We we don't know what's going on with Apple. They could just they could just turn up in a van one day and just say, right, we're here, we're gonna harvest your limbs. We're trying to reanimate the corpse of Steve Jobs. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if you realise, but in the last like a thousand things that you've signed up to. We've repeatedly asked you if it was okay if we could take your organs and limbs to bring the uh, to bring Steve Jobs back to life. And you have said yes, like, repeatedly. So I think it's beyond doubt here that... Uh, just get in the van. Get in the fucking van. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know, man. But this is what most people think. This is what most people think. A podcast coming to you in the week where the idea that uh, right-wing comedians should maybe have some portion of the airtime on topical comedy shows was once again controversial you know it turned out that there was I don't know if you saw the report but there were well it's interesting because the the right-wing press chose to focus on the fact that like 70 75 percent of comics or across tv and radio were um were sort of left-wing liberal remaining types what they didn't mention was zero spots because I think the only spots they could find find given to right of center comics were me and Giles Brandriff (laughs) I'm sure Giles Brandreth is a he's a very funny man. I wouldn't even I'm not even sure he would describe himself as a mainstay of the stand-up circuit. But look, for the time being, that balance doesn't exist in television. But the great thing about comedy at the moment is that's not the only place you can find it. You can have it here uh, on this podcast where sometimes it's me wanging on. Sometimes I have a comedian like Leo Kirst or Constantine Kissing or an Andrew Doyle 
Or sometimes I have a guest like I do today, which is also people that I find politically unconventional. And today's guest is Paul Embry. Paul Embry is, uh, well, he's an interesting figure. He's a, He's been Labour all his life. He's been a trade union man all his life. So naturally, of course, he's a contentious figure on the left. But he is part of what he would call, I guess, blue Labour, blue collar Labour. He represents perhaps more socially conservative values on the left. And it's an interesting place to be. So, you know, I had an interview with him earlier. And look, I tried not to give him an easy ride because it turns out I do agree with a lot of stuff he said, but also tried to challenge him on some of the things his critics would put to him. Because the last thing we want, we don't want to be like one of these shows where it's just people agreeing with each other, right? But um, but anyway, I think you'll like him as a guest. And a lot of people uh, in the Patreon community have asked for me to chat to Paul. And here he is, right? This is the thing. Patreons. The power of the Patreon. By the way, the power of the Patreon is the reason I'm recording this late on Thursday is I've re-recorded the intro because I listened to it back and it was so shit. <laughs> I don't know what was going on with me earlier. I finished it. I thought, yeah, fucking nailed that. I put it on my phone. I thought, I'll go for a little drive. Uh, I'll have a listen to that while I'm going out. And I was absolute dog shit, absolute dog shit. But this is when, when you've got clients. I've got patrons who I have to deliver for now. This, it, you know, this is a great thing about capitalism. It focuses the mind. Um, and we have some new patrons this week. We've got just somebody who calls himself F, just F on its own, just some weird, perhaps I've got my first non-binary patron there. Doesn't I don't identify as a name. I think names are very reductive. So uh, just someone called Nick. Um... And someone called Nicholas Tall. Nicholas God. You know, we spoke on the, the other week on the podcast about if you've got one of those names that implies something positive, but you're like, you know, if your name's Hope or Destiny and you, you, your life's in the shit. Just imagine if poor old Nicholas Tall is not tall. You know, it's just just an irony that he has to face. I hope he's at least rocking in six foot because if he's like five foot three, uh, that is a poor, that is a, that's a bad irony to have to face every single day of his fucking life. But um, I thank you for your contribution to the Patreon. And the key thing that the Patreon does at the moment, which people seem to be appreciating, is that it keeps it weekly, but more importantly at the moment, it keeps it ad-free. Because a lot of podcasts, I understand people want to make money their way and put adverts on. No issue with that. I've chosen this way, and you're helping me keep it ad-free. Okay, so I appreciate you helping me and allowing me to do that. Because it's a bit different when you're a right-of-centre comic. I would... Probably they, you know, they would be, they'd be wary of what I was going to say about things like Black Lives Matter or trans issues. So it's just better for content if it's sort of self-funded, and also it avoids me having moments like this. Bing bong bing. Hi, I'm Jeff Norcott, and this Christmas I'm using Skidaddle. What? Yeah, boy. Sk- Skedaddle is a brand new banging app uh, that reminds me of things I've got to do, and if I'm running late, Skedaddle. Yeah, boy. It's it sets a timer five minutes before I lead, need to leave the house and administers a small electric shock to make sure that I go from the makers of shitbox. Bing bong bing. I don't know what that bing bong bing thing is. I don't know where that sounds like a, I mean, an 80s, um, 80s department store. Do you know what I mean? I'm like, I'm going to go and stroke Mrs. Slocum's pussy. And if there's any millennials listening, you've got to go and Google that and work that out for yourself. Um, we do a cuss count every week, just tracking the trends in swearing. I've got a big apology to my friend and a friend of the show is David Domain. He did supply the cuss count for the previous show and I just left it out. Um, but believe it or not, I've actually forgot to include it in the document this week. But I have got last week's cuss count from the episode with Leo. And people seem to really like that episode. They just said it was funny. 
And that's the point, isn't it? Just being funny. Political comedians, you don't just get to make a point about politics, all right? I mean, today's a bit different because I'm doing an interview where I'm trying to seem smart in front of somebody who's got their own book out. But you've got to do jokes. And, and Leo did jokes. And, and do check out that episode because a lot of people seem to have enjoyed it. But let's just do the scores on the doors. So the swear words this week are off the vidi printer, fucking 21, piss 2, pisses 1, prick 1. Prickery one, shit five. Shit one, shit scared one. Shit storm one, shitty one. There's a lot of shit here, isn't there? Evidently, I was a bit backed up last week. And wank two, just two wanks there. That reminds me of my teenage years, that does. And uh, that was 0.6 per minute. That's not bad with a guess. I thought we'd swear more of Leo there. Leo, the big six foot fucking nine, tough guy of right wing comedy. He only, he only swore twice during the podcast, so... Um, he was, uh, he was an excellent guest, though, but uh, he delivered. Speaking of delivering, because somebody said to me last week, my links were shit, so I'm going to do some really clunky links here. I've just got to say something about PMQs, by the way. So Prime Minister's Question Time. I usually encounter what's happened first up on Twitter. And the way that people exaggerate how well Starmer has done is just off the chart, right? So broadly speaking, he does do better than Boris Johnson. He frequently does better. He's better at the dispatch box. I think he's a brighter guy, certainly sharper with language. But they have to add a bit of VAT, don't they, the left? And oh, my God. Oh, my God. Starmer absolutely eviscerated Johnson today. He annihilated Johnson. It was embarrassing. He wore Boris Johnson's face as a mask. He, he painted his name on Boris Johnson in, in Boris Johnson's blood. You know, okay, all right, fucking hell, better check out this PMQs. And then you kind of watch it and you think, yeah, no, he's made some good points there. He's, uh, he's, he's, he's sort of still not picking a position himself, but he's going at Boris here. And then the usual thing where Boris sort of looks like he's going to be completely overwhelmed. Do you ever notice that where you think, oh, he's going, he's going, the old long COVID's kicking in. <laughs> and then he did fight back a bit. He made a point that perhaps even some people on the left would make about Starmer is that uh, it would help his cause a little bit if he had a cause. What a soundbite that was. I'm going to say that again. It would help his cause a bit if he had a cause. If he picked a fucking team, old Keir Splinter, <laughs> from sitting on the fence, eh? Keir Splinter, was that a good one? Would that catch on? I don't know. Certainly not as good as Keir Starmer. If somebody ever wants to send the actual lyrics into that, because I've just sort of made up noises, really. But what they do when they do that about um, PMQs is they overhype it. And, and then if you're perhaps like more neutral about Boris Johnson, like me, you sort of think, oh, Jesus Christ, better watch this. And your thought when you come away isn't Boris Johnson uh, didn't do as well as Starmer there. You think, well, he didn't do as bad as they said he did. Right? That's the problem with hype, isn't it? They're like, they're like those people that were saying the film Joker was better than Taxi Driver, weren't they? Speaking of films, there you go. There's another clunky fucking link there. Uh, I watched I watched Wonder Woman this yesterday. I watched Wonder Woman 1984 at the cinema, and uh, I got to say, man, one thing I love about the Wonder Woman film is obviously, look, it it's supposed to be a bit feministy, right? It's a female lead written by Pat, written, produced, directed by Patty Jenkins. So it's supposed to be like a bit empowering for the women, and it's got a lot more empathy in it. You know, like Wonder Woman doesn't kill people. I just sort of thought, first of all, I'm not sure about that. Do you know what I mean? Like, if you had a female superhero, like, the idea that she'd be like, oh, mercy for you, fucking... Yeah, I don't think that the, the history of female dictators and queens, as we look back on them, suggests that there'd be much more mercy if women had unique powers. But um, what, what I thought was hilarious about it was they come from this place, Amazonia or something, where 
it's this all-female society. But they are like the hottest women you've ever seen in your life. They have this sporting uh, contest at the beginning. And they're just all walking around like, I mean, they're all like six foot. And can they they six foot Victoria's Secrets models that can do backflips and throw spears. I don't know. It, it, look, if that's feminism, I'm in. Right? And even when they call for like the, the, the societal elders, you go, all right, maybe, maybe we'll have someone here that won't look quite... Oh, no, no, there's straight nine as well. Even though this woman is in her mid-50s, she is still like absolutely smoking hot. So um, I, I don't know. I don't know. Is that that thing where women say, no, no, they, they look good for them, okay? Okay, okay, they're looking good for them. No men around. It's not like men are good. It's not in any way an attempt to drag men into into see the film that they might not otherwise see. And that's what I'm doing now. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of marketing it on that basis. But yeah, I would say that the first the first half an hour, it's, it's very good. It's very good. Um, just to, <laughs> You can just leave then like a pervert. Go, oh, that's all right, going to get a bit boring now and a bit preachy. But they look good in those outfits, didn't they? Anyway, enjoy the rest of the film, everyone. Uh, we always do a thank you and a fuck you. Uh, thank you actually to View Cinema for, for just being open. For being open. You've got to go to the cinema to see the big films. Don't let cinemas die. There's one open. Look, and also between Christmas and New Year, you're going to want to get out of the house. Because I think we're all facing this reality now as we get into Christmas. Because you know, it's like you do your family thing, but we think, oh, we'll see your friends that day. See so-and-so that day. You ain't getting none of that this Christmas, right? If you're observing the rules, you ain't getting none of that. So you're going to want to get out of the fucking house. Trust me. So have a look at the cinema. Whatever old shit they've got. Just go there and, <laughs> just go there and sleep. Just go and sleep in a cinema. You know, I, 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 just can't, I just can't abide these people that are like, no, but the thing is, I, I, I'm happy to watch films at home. You know, this, the screen we've got now with my Sony 1080D fucking curve. No, you, your screen is not better than a cinema. I'll tell you why. Because your dog will come and jump up in your fucking lap. You're probably going to have your phone on. And also, and also, where else are you going to eat a tub of pop- popcorn the size of your fucking head and not think it's weird? Do you know what I mean? I don't care. Sometimes when you're at home, you go, oh, make popcorn. But you make one of those little packets and stuff. It's always a bit annoying, isn't it? The kernels never fully, fully burst in the end if you're a fat bastard like me. Do you ever have that thing where you make the microwavable popcorn and then you end up eating the kernels because it's got to be... No, just me on that one. Fair enough. Okay, and a fuck you. The fuck you goes to Amazon. Amazon, and, and I'm not like, you know, like these lefty comics will go at them on their, you know, the fact that they should re- redistribute in their wealth. I think mainly I just want them to redistribute my packages on time. But I don't know what's going on, man. The paper that they're using in the packaging this year smells like vomit. It smells like vomit. I don't know what's going on with Jeff Bezos. Maybe he's had to do a bit of cost cutting there because, you know, he hasn't done quite as well out of this pandemic yet as he, as he feels like he needs to. But you check it out. The next time you get a piece of Amazon packaging... The paper smells like vomit. I don't know. Is that is that a sign of how <laughs> is that is that a sign of how bad it's got in, in the workshops? You know what I mean? Just keep going. But Jeff, I feel sick. Keep going. Make Jeff Bezos more money. Anyway, now let's get into the chat with acclaimed left wing social commentator and now author Paul Embry. Okay, so welcome to What Most People Think, making his first appearance is Mr. Paul Embry. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for being on. Now, a lot of my listeners will already um, know who you are, but it'd be good if you could just sort of situate, you know, who you are, where your politics are, are coming from in a general sense. 
Okay, so I'm on the left. I've been a part of the labour movement for around 26 years now. I'm a, I'm a trade unionist. Uh, I'm also a firefighter by trade. That's my primary job. I also Easy, ladies. Bit. I can hear them already. <laughs> <laughs> they can't see me. If they could, they might not be. <laughs> oh, I don't know, Paul. A man can pull off that colour hair and, you know, it, uh, you're doing you. great, mate. You've got a lot of fans out there. Flattery will get you everywhere, Jeff. Um, so, so yeah, that's my that's my day job as a firefighter. I do a bit of media work. I do a bit of writing. I'm a columnist for for Unheard. But yes, I've been I've been active in the the Labour movement for 26 years as a as a trade unionist. I've been a member of the Labour Party for for that time as well. Um, I grew up in the East London borough of Barking and Dagenham, a pretty sort of working class blue collar community. And that kind of experience growing up in that place has has, has informed my politics really to a large degree. And I've just had a book published called. Uh, despised why the modern left load the working class and uh, that uh, that sets out a lot of my a lot of my arguments so why are i mean it'd be fair to say that you are so you are of the left you've been a member of the labor party you still are i presume yes yes yeah you vote i know that you voted you know even with your issues with corbyn and the labor party you voted labor at the last election mm-hmm. so why are you such a contentious figure to some people on the left I think largely because the left itself has gone through a a radical transformation over the last 20 or 30 years. Um, Mm. What were once upon a time pretty conventional mainstream positions and opinions on the left um, have almost suddenly become taboo. And anyone who still kind of holds on to to those opinions... um, is regarded as anathema is regarded as kind of like the mm. enemy within and there's a there's now a rigid kind of orthodoxy on the left you know the, the, so much of the left wants diversity and everything but opinion um and tell me about it mate this week political comedy on telly i can't, I can't go there anymore can't well, go. <laughs> you know you know as much as anybody uh, you know you're probably better than anybody and and you know the, the truth is if you if you stand against that particularly if you someone like me you do it within the movement itself yeah um, and then, as I say, you're the you're the devil incarnate, and and the left has, you know, I've watched it, I've watched it transform. The left has become very, very dominant now with this kind of middle class, liberal, student, social activist kind of cohort of of person, people living in our fashionable cities, um, and whereas once upon a time there was a very sort of rich thread on the left of working class culture, yeah. You know, blue collar communities who were active on the left um the left has almost withdrawn from from those places and those places in turn have, have pretty much rejected the left as we saw at the last well election. yeah i mean i think we should put some flesh on the bones here because people often say that will give examples first up just sort of dial back a little bit you you mentioned a, a belief that might be taboo on the left could you just give an example of, of what one of those beliefs yeah i'll give an i'll give an example for example the issue of immigration um, not that long ago, uh, it was a mainstream view on the left that regulation of the labour supply was was important. That um, you know control of the labour supply was a market dynamic, which, like all market dynamics, needed to be regulated to to provide the best outcome for workers, allow governments to plan around welfare and housing and employment mm. and all of that sort of thing, um, and. You know, also because I think many people on the left realised that you couldn't just have a system where you know you, you, you had rapid and large-scale movements of, of people in and out of working-class communities with some of the pressures that that would that, that would bring. It's something I saw at close quarters in my own borough of Barking and Dagenham. Um, and you, those pressures, do you mean by that? Like, I mean, obviously, there's the you know certainly in terms of manual trades, uh, mm. there might be 
you know, serious price competition undercutting, you know, some people would argue that. But are we also talking kind of like social pressures of, of rapid change in communities? We're, we're talking exactly that. So social and economic disruption. Uh, and my argument is that rapid and large scale movements of labour can cause the same kind of social and economic disruption as rapid and large scale movements of capital. And when you put the two together, which mm. is what globalisation is all about, um, that's when you have whirlwinds ripping through usually working class communities, hard pressed communities. So it's the, the economic impact of people who might be in particular sectors of industry where, you know, there's an oversupply of labour suddenly and that can exert downward pressure on wages. And there's a social and cultural impact as well, um, which is particularly what I saw in, in Barking and Dagenham, uh, where people just start to feel a sense of disorientation. They, they feel everything that they were kind of familiar with, a settled and stable community, if it's subject to large movements of people coming in, um, then that can violate people's sense of order. And I contend that's, for the most part, absolutely not in a racist way. I'm pro-immigration, by the way. I think it's brought benefits to our country. I'd like to see more of it. I just think it needs to be better planned and better controlled. Otherwise, what you do is you create anger and disorientation, usually in working class communities, and you get kicked back against it. Yeah. Um, and I think the really sad thing is we were kind of going through a process as a country where we were improving in terms of our approach to immigration it was almost becoming a bit of a dead issue in our country you know you mm -hmm. go back to the 70s when the national front was on the march and, and that kind of you know, Enoch Powell um, we, we kind of put the issue to bed largely and then as a result of kind of EU free movement and the impacts of globalization and the fact that the political establishment particularly the left just said to people well this is good for you. Get on with it. Don't complain about it. Um, it actually I mean, and the high watermark of that would have, I suppose, been the comment of Gordon Brown to Gillian Duffy, which was to take a reasonable question about immigration and just go, oh, that's a bigoted, bigoted woman. Exactly. And, and indicative of the approach of much of the left, you know, raise concerns about it and you must instinctively be a bigot. Um, and that kind of approach has turned the an issue which was becoming a bit of a non-issue into a running sore in our politics and in our mm. society. And the left, particularly responsible for it, has got to look at the way it handled the issue. It demonised people as racists and bigots and xenophobes just for simply saying that this is having a pretty serious impact and rapid impact in our community can we just slow it down a bit um, because it's creating social and economic disruption and, and that's an example of, of how even voicing that kind of moderate opinion yeah. now gets you demonized on the left and you know the other thing that really annoys me about the left's approach to this is that open borders which is something that actually bernie sanders who's a hero to uh, the international left as, as to his credit recognized um, that it's a boss's dream. You know, whereas once upon a time, if you wanted to save money on labour costs, you can you would have to sort of transfer your operations to the Far East or wherever. Yeah. Free movement laws just gives them the opportunity to do that in reverse. You know, they can shift workers from low wage economies to high wage economies and drive down labour costs in that way. And, and so many people on the left don't, don't see So that just thing. again, just to maybe do with the sort of help people out of the jargon open borders i mean this this is one again one of these concepts that we know about because we're on social media with the these people sort of slogging it out day in day out but it's, again it's such an absolutist concept that there are a lot of people that just believe freedom of movement shouldn't just be within the eu it should be a concept broadly applied across the planet right yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs> it actually makes it hard to say because i sort of think like i the people that agree with it i just I don't want it to happen because I think that the discord that would go with it would be so great, but I just love them 
to have at least a week of seeing the consequence of the absolute clusterfuck that it would be if 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 that happened. And it's not about not liking people from other places. It's about it's about realizing that um, that it would create like a such vacuums. It would create some places would be deserted, some places would be overwhelmed. But it's a nice thing to say, though, isn't it? Maybe that's why they like it. It feels good to say it. It, it feels good to say it. It gives the impression, look, you know, peace, love and harmony. We're all in favour of people going where they want to go, loving who yeah. they want to love in the place they want to love them and working where Oh, they yeah, want. yeah, to live, all, love and work. In yeah, yeah, <laughs> all of this sort of stuff. But you hit on a point there, which is something that's often not covered in this debate, is when, when you do have a system of, of free movement like we do in the EU, which allows the large-scale movement of people from low-wage economies to high-wage economies, because it's ne- let's be blunt, it's never the other way around. You don't really get British workers en masse going to Romania or Lithuania or, or places like this in order yeah. to, to kind of improve their lot. The, 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 the traffic is, is all one way. Unless they're um, on the run from the CSA or something. <laughs> yeah, like, those those well, sort of blokes. They often end up, I knew a few, few blokes like in, in the early noughties that ended up in Indonesia. That's well, that's, that's the people you mix with, Jeff, obviously. So. <laughs> but um, but yeah. they look at, um, you know, you look at, there was a story in The Guardian uh, a year or two ago, which talked about a crisis in the the Romanian health service where 43,000 doctors had left the health service since the uh, Romania's accession to the EU in 2004 I think it was um, and they traveled you know further to, to, to Western Europe and that has created a real health service with a lack of doctors in Romania you look at Latvia Latvia has got effectively a depopulation crisis which I mentioned in the book where I think around a fifth of its workers or something have, have just kind of decamped and, and gone to higher wage economies so so what you have with a system of, of free movement between highly diverse economies, you have the, the, the oversupply of labour in certain sectors in the richer economy, which pushes down wages and impacts on, on, on people's wages, and the depopulation crisis in the lower wage economies, mm. which creates real problems in those countries. This is stuff. Is, I mean, the, the truth is, Jeff, this is a complex multifaceted issue and it requires a lot of thought and just simply saying open borders everyone go where they want and if you don't like that you're a racist or a xenophobe is trite and it doesn't take the debate forward i mean that is you know i see some of the things that that people apply to you and call you you know racist far right dog whistles all these sort of things i mean just say but playing devil's advocate here what is it about what you're saying where are they getting that from what what are the kind of things that you say that lead them down that path oh i think you know if you for example my book was denounced and you may have seen it on social media uh, my book was denounced by some people on the left as you know a far right manifesto or a or a fascist track most of them hadn't even read it by the point some of them no, was before it was you know, minor details Paul you don't need minor to read details of a few these days yeah but they just knew they just knew it was some sort of fascist track and the the reason i mean the only reason they came to this view some of them was that in the in the synopsis, you know, I, the synopsis basically is, is an overview of my beliefs, which is that, you know, in order to be relevant, again, the Labour Party needs to combine socialist economics, so a radical sort of economic policy, um, with 
a return to the cultural politics of place and belonging and community instead of mm. the kind of open borders, citizen of nowhere, cosmopolitan liberalism that it's embraced. But that was enough, that simple part about saying we needed a return to the cultural politics of place and belonging and community was enough to people to say, this is a homage to the Vichy regime, this is far right stuff, this is fascism in disguise. Um, and and that's that, that shows, frankly, how away with the fairies some people well, I mean, it's sometimes that argument is also characterised as some wares versus anywheres, isn't there? There's there's a lot of people that are just happy to whatever city has what they want, you know, kind of like restaurant districts, theatre districts, amenities, certain kinds of schools. Not, not nothing against them. Do you know what I mean? Like that's their priority. They would live there. They wouldn't mind how far it was from the conurbation in which they grew up. Whereas some people are. Um, so that'd be anywheres. So somewheres are people who, who've made an important thing of, of living within the community and staying within the community that they grew up in. I mean, I remember when I did the documentary of um, how the middle classes were in Britain, I spoke to people just like, you know, we don't want, we want it to be good here. You know, we want investment in this town. So it makes sense to carry on living in this town. And I've got to be honest, even as someone who grew up in London, I was like, but you don't really, do you? You want to go and work in city centre Nottingham? They're like, no. And it took me a while to really get my head around the fact that, oh, yeah, not everyone wants to live in a fucking city. And that, that point um, is covered really well by David Goodhart, the, the writer, uh, particularly in his book called The Road to Somewhere, where he, he kind of says that the country is, you know, divided to a certain degree between the, the, the somewheres and the anywheres. And as you say, the somewheres are people who are generally on lower wages, um, less in the way of opportunity for, for travel and career advancement, etc. much more rooted, much more parochial, often because they have less opportunity um, and, you know, tend to be based in the provinces, whereas the, the anywheres generally better paid, often university educated, great opportunities in the way of travel and career advancement. And they see the world from, from anywhere rather than somewhere. And, and what David Goodhart says in his book, and I think he describes it where really well, is that the country is made up of about 50% somewheres about 25% anywheres and the rest kind of in between us but the problem is the political establishment and particularly mm. the left establishment is dominated by anywheres so they see the world through the the lens of anywhere rather than somewhere and and go you know that goes back to the issue for example of free movement you know, for the anywhere group, free movement's a great thing. You know, they've been to university, they might have travelled abroad during their gap year, they might be able to go and work abroad um, in, in Europe as a result of their job. But if you're a somewhere and those opportunities simply are not available to you and your only experience of free movement is a large number of people coming in, working in your industry, perhaps pushing your wages down, you know, not, not their fault, of course, but mm. nonetheless, that's the effect of it. Um, then you might not see free movement as such a, as such a good thing. But, but this is the problem. The anywheres dominate our culture. They dominate our politics. And so they implement policies which they think are in the national interest, but are in fact in the anywhere interest. And that's, that's I think, a good way of describing the divide that's broken out in our country over the last couple of decades. Just cutting into the chat with Paul Embry there. Hope you're enjoying it. Just a, a little tickle on the tour stuff. Um, I Venues are selling out. I think there's three or four sellouts now. There's some venues. like It's almost gone. All the London dates are almost gone. Uh, Manchester's almost gone. And I'm just saying, like, hey, you go, Jeff, you just want to sell your tickets and sleep at night. Yes, maybe there is a bit of that. 
but also um, I also know from having done this being my fourth tour is when those venues do sell out people would just go to me and go fucking hell fucking sold out could you give us a heads up even though that's literally all I talk about and also the book uh, where did I go right brackets how the left lost me and then for regular listeners that is the first time I've remembered the title at first go it is written it's there waiting for you. If you pre-order it, you'd be doing me a solid. And also, there is probably, some of you have got a missus or a husband where, you know, they keep they keep badgering you. Well, you haven't given me any ideas yet. They're just trying to put an excuse for giving you a shit present. Don't give them that excuse. Tell them that you want my book or tour tickets or both and just tell them to print it out, stick it in a box, fucking wrap it up. Um, just before we go back to the chat with Paul, one of um, my listeners, James Hargreave, he took... He took the time to put together like a 12 Days of Christmas compilation of me swearing during the cuss count. And uh, just a bit of fun before we go back to the serious political chat. Uh, this is what he came up with. On the um, on the 12th day of Christmas, my true love said to uh, me. 24 fuckings, I think that's actually a record. Uh, two cunt muppets, <laughs> 20 fuckings, I mean, it's kind of standard. 13 shits. And three wankies. 40-something fuckwords. One arse, one bastard, two twats, 24 fuckings. One piss, seven shits, two piss, one pissing, two pissies, a lot of piss. 18 fuckers. I think that that's three shows in a row now. One shat, past tense of shit. One ape shit, one bullshit, one bat shit. Um, fuck. Sorry, I didn't mean that I sort of hiccuped as I said it. Fuck. <laughs> I love that. Anyway, let's get back to the chat with Paul. You know, one thing I don't want to do is, is just give an easy ride because there's a lot of what you're saying that makes sense to me. You know, there was something that you said there about driving down wages. Now, we saw through the EU referendum and subsequently a lot of people claiming that this this simply, you know, wasn't true about wage depression. What sort of stats and facts have, have you got to kind of back that up? Well, I, I mean, what the point that I make in the book is, is that the the impact of immigration in terms of wages as a whole is broadly negligible. OK, there's some evidence saying it improves wages broadly, some evidence saying it, it doesn't improve wages. Um, but the point that I make in the book is actually when you drill down into it a little bit more, you can see evidence that it has an impact at the lower end of the, the scale in terms of lower wages and also on wage distribution. So, for example, a Bank of England um, report showed that for every 10 percentage point increase in the number of immigrants in skilled or semi-skilled jobs, it can impact on wages by, by 2%. Now, 2% might not seem a lot to people, but if you're not on a very good wage, it can be, you know, over the course of a year, it can be an appreciable blow. And also, we saw stories, and I, and I cite them in my book, we saw stories coming out after the referendum them where a slowdown in the rate of EU workers coming to Britain had created a shortage of labour in certain industries. So, for example, retail and catering and hospitality. And those industries, as a result, saw some of the sharpest sudden increases. Yes, in yeah, no, I remember that. Yeah, wages. pay settlements were going up in those sectors. Yeah, yeah. because of the shortage. And, and you know, the, the, the truth is labour labor is no different to anything else. If you have an oversupply of it, it drives the individual cost down. I mean, that's, that's an, iron law, an iron law of economics. Um, so, and it, you know, it can it can also have uh, an impact on, as I say, wage distribution. So, so you know, the, the share of wages, how it's distributed, uh, affects people at the lower end of the scale. And often, migrants. There's evidence showing that migrants' wages themselves in Britain are impacted by large-scale immigration. So, I think you know, I, I've never made the case, and I don't make the case in the book that um, 
immigration will automatically affect everybody's wages and the nation will be poorer um, because, as I say, mm. the evidence is negligible. But for the lower end, people at the lower end of the scale who I care about, I'm a working class person, I've been a trade union rep, I represent those people, that's where the evidence is that it hits people hardest. And we should be honest about that and trade union leaders should be honest about that rather than denying it. Well, I think it's a fair, fair point in a way because like, I, what I found at one point was the exact same people that would be kind of boasting to me about how cheap they got a conservatory done with people from Eastern Europe, right, would then be dismissing the idea that that might have had any knock-on effects in labourers. And I'll go as far as saying that, that they started to become an open contempt for skilled tradesmen in this country. Like, like because there was a cheap alternative, I think the same thing happened with Uber and black taxi drivers. People really loved Uber because of the convenience and the cost. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, you know, I've sat in black cabs and, and heard some dodgy opinions from black cab drivers like anybody else. <laughs> but, was, you know, they, they, they were not the majority. Um, but, yeah, they, they seemed to develop a sort of contempt for people that had, had learned their trade, got qualified in this country, but were, were daring to charge like a, a rate that recognised their own value. And uh, yeah, and there's utter hypocrisy that runs through that runs through their argument. I mean, another example you could use is is farm workers, you know, fruit pickers, agricultural workers, Um, the same people who swear blind that free movement does not affect wages and does not drive down wages Mm. are the same people usually who are arguing that, hey, after Brexit, if we don't have huge numbers of farm workers coming in from from Eastern Europe picking our strawberries, then, you know, we're not going to be able to have fruit because British British people are just not prepared to, to do that sort of work. Well, actually, what they mean is British people are not prepared to do it for the pittance that's often paid to Eastern mm. European workers to do it. So you mentioned earlier about your, your, your care for kind of migrant workers um, as well. Is there a danger, and I apply this to myself, that when we talk about the working classes, when we say normal, everyday people, if we're honest, are we thinking white working class? Is that a danger? Well, it's a danger. And, you know, we need to we need to steer clear of it. I'm I'm constantly accused on social media and elsewhere of banging on about the white working class of, of you know, flying the flag of the white working class. Actually, if you look at if you look at the history of, you know, the columns I've been writing over recent years, all of my tweets over the last 10 years, the number of times I've mentioned white working class is probably no more than about 20 or 25 times. And that's in 10 years. And that's strictly in context when the debate is about the white working class. I don't like the term, Jeff, because I think the working class is all different colours and races. Yeah. Um, I'm often accused when I use the term traditional working class, I mean, it's, you know, it's a euphemism for white working class. Now, the interesting thing there, I think when people accuse me of that, they're actually betraying their own prejudice. Because if you're saying to me that, you know, the, the black worker who came over on the on the Windrush, for example, and worked on the London Underground Transport System, or the Asian family who came over in the 50s and 60s and settled in a northern mill town, that they can't be considered part of the traditional working class in Britain because they're not white, then I think actually you probably need to look at yourself if you're if you're if you're making that sort of argument. So no, I, I, I don't think we should get too deep into to talk about the white working class. I don't think we need to wage a culture war on behalf of the, the, the white working class. The working class is all different colours. And, and, you know, whether you're black or white, if you're suffering from low wages, substandard housing, all the pressures of society, then, then the left should be rallying to your cause and not seeking to divide you from each other.
Uh, but but that, that, can I just say that's different from the issue of free movement. The issue mm. of free movement is, is not about colour as far as I'm concerned. You know, it's, you know, there's a legitimate argument to say, well, actually, free movement from the EU effectively gives 600 million white people the, the right to come here. But if you're a, an, an African or someone from the West Indies and oh, you yeah. want to come here, you have to you have to jump through hoops. So so, you know, I, I think we should separate the, the issue of free movement from the issue of, of, you know, the white working class and those sorts of debates. Got well, that, I mean, like I get a lot. So whenever I talk about class on this podcast, people say, oh, you're banging on about class. You know, that old phrase chip on your shoulder, which you've gone away for a while has now come back but I do wonder if the Brexit sort of exposed that fault line because it, like you say it was an alliance wasn't it there was two groups of people that weren't that similar but this kind of deal was you vote for us we'll look after you uh, when we get in power but then there was that moment after Brexit where everything dropped didn't it like kind of the, the artifice like there were opinions shared about kind of leave voters and stuff and 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 that is that since then been a fault line a chasm between two strands of, of labor do you think that it's ever going to be possible to kind of like heal that wound i think it i think it potentially is possible but um i mean the from from labor's point of view there's an absolute mountain to climb and it, it's still you know still only in the foothills at the moment i mean what it needs to do first of all it needs to radically change itself i think the labor party um, it needs to stop hating the working class. And I, don't, I don't sort of say that loosely. Um, it needs. To but do you think it's as strong as hate? Because people might take oh, it with, with, with. I mean, but what what's the evidence that they actually hate the working class? Oh, there's contempt. I mean, you know, I've been active. I've been active on the left for 26 years, and and you you, and sometimes it hid, it's hidden. Sometimes it slips out. Um, but there's a there's a sneering you know, mockery sometimes of the working class and a, and a general kind of underlying contempt. Look at the Emily Thornberry thing with the, you know, the, the white van and the flag in Rochester. Um, now, he, he had a sort of, at the time, she was a shadow cabinet minister who went to, you know, it was clearly, you know, a, a sort of working class estate in Rochester and, and you know, the people living there with the white van outside and the and the St George's flag. And she clearly, you know, she, she's obviously middle class, Islingtonian, um, and she clearly thought that this image was so noteworthy that it was worth tweeting, you know, in a, in a kind of sneering way. And she, in many respects, and, you know, you mentioned the Gordon Brown thing with Gillian Duffy, these kinds of things, occasionally the mask slips and you, you see... And if, if people at the top are saying those sorts of things, you can imagine what some of the, the activists are saying. Um, so, so there is, in my mind, no doubt, a, a, a kind of underlying contempt towards what they see as reactionaries and bigots and social conservatives and people who believe in all that kind of patriotism and a sense of community and a sense of place. And they might have, you know, unfashionable opinions on things like law and order and immigration and national security they believe in the nation state um, and because of that you know people on the left who who, are, who think they're imbued with the principles of the enlightenment and they're inherently better people the whole time you know they're liberals and progressives they just assume um, that they're that they're better people and and these working class communities have to be dragged out of their ignorance um, and that feeling has got more pronounced over the years that sentiment now is much stronger than, than it ever was in my view when you look uh, going back in the 70s how many uh, Labour MPs came from sort of manual working class backgrounds to now I think it's gone from something like 70% to something like 7% I mean it's just a ridiculous journey that they've gone on there you look at where the Labour vote resides now Again, huge amounts of it are, are ABC One adults, 
uh, who, who are in metropolitan city centres. So if anyone's listening, sort of thinking that we're just kind of like, you know, this is hyperbole, the, the, the metrics are there and it's un, that's happened in, in a relatively short space of time, which I guess, you know, the one thing I wonder in a way is you say that you're socially conservative. What is it about, what what is Labour about you? Is is it is it the 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 economics? Because I wonder if have you ever flirted with you know the Tories or certainly as they've moved a bit economically left. Where are you at? No, I've never I've never flirted with the Tories. I don't think I ever would. I mean, I I grew up in a Labour heartland. Um, I was an activist in in a trade union from from when I got a Saturday job stacking the shelves in the local ASDA when I was when I was sixteen. Um, you know, they didn't, the old saying, they didn't count the votes, the Labour votes in Barking and Dagenham, they weighed them. And I just, hmm. you know, my, my dad was a, a shop steward for, I mean, neither of my parents were particularly political, but they, they both basically Labour. My dad was a, a shop steward for uh, his works depot. My mum worked for the GMB union um, for several years as a secretary. So in that, in that sense, it was a little bit tribal um, and it still is but I, equally I just genuinely believe that for all its faults at the moment the, the, the Labour Party remains the vehicle and, and has historically always been the vehicle um, best place to advance the interests of working class people I think that you know in terms of in terms of the advances made by working class people over the years whether it's you know, a minimum wage, whether it's a national health service, a welfare state, whether it's, you know, council housing, decent housing, all of all of these things have largely been brought about by, by the Labour movement, by campaigns by the Labour movement. But in 2016, people voted for the first time because they thought they could change the, the system. They thought they could change society in a way that a general election, you know, their vote often doesn't particularly count. Um, and when you had this huge exercise, 33 and a half million people took part and a majority said, we want to leave the EU. And they did that. This is the ironic thing. Most people voted leave because they felt the political establishment over many years had stopped listening to them and then that same political establishment set about proving mm. those people right and and tried to subvert the vote and because labor was such a big part of trying to overturn the vote i think that that had a significant it wasn't by any stretch it wasn't the only reason people fell out of it was a lot i mean when i did that documentary and i was in places like ashfield and in the east midlands it wasn't just that they changed from labor they hated labor like it it, it was it was much more than just like swing votes. I mean, you, you, you know, you were outspoken on on Brexit, and and you spoke at that that rally in London. But there were consequences for you, weren't there, in terms of your union? Do you just explain what happened in and around that? Yeah, I lost my job over it. Um, so that's was, your union uh, sacked you for speaking at the the pro leave rally. Well, well, to to get it absolutely right, um, because there's going to be an employment tribunal, so so it's important that I'm I'm completely accurate about how it's how it's reported. To get it absolutely right, they didn't sack me um, just for speaking at the rally. They sacked me. I mean, in my view, it was a pretext. You know, it was completely yeah. it was completely um, manipulated. But they they sacked me technically for something that I said during the rally. So during the rally, I gave a speech for about four or five minutes. Um, it's available on on YouTube, so people can you know tell that I'm not I'm not lying here Um, and during during the speech I I made a specific statement where I at this time there were leaders of the Labour movement who were trying to subvert the Brexit result this was in 2019 we still weren't out of the EU the Theresa May government had got another extension people were getting quite angry about it and I said that the leaders leaders of the Labour movement were in danger of making the movement irrelevant by being seen to take the side of the establishment over over the people now, you can disagree with that. I felt that that was a legitimate 
point to yeah. make in, in the speech. Well, and right by the in the fullness of time. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but the my union leadership decided that that simple statement amounted to an attack on the whole fire brigades union, my union, even though the FBU wasn't even mentioned during the speech, I wasn't introduced as an FBU official, the speech took place yeah. in my own time on a Friday evening. Um, and they, they used that as a pretext for, for elbowing me out. Um, and, you know, that that's the consequence of, of standing up for Brexit as part of the Labour movement. Is that because are they particularly sort of progressive or, or, or woke? Because people wouldn't think a fire brigade union of all unions would would behave in such a way. You'd be surprised. Um, I mean, we've got we've got a, a leadership that uh, I wouldn't necessarily call them woke particularly, but they, they kind of come, some of them, some of the senior officials come very much from a kind of Trotskyist um tradition so they've got they've got pretty hardline politics and they were they were kind of vehemently anti-brexit and and i don't think they like the fact that i was campaigning for the other side even though we've had a rich tradition in the in the fbu and in the wider trade union movement of of a diversity of opinion and being able to express your own view on things especially if you're speaking in a personal capacity um on this occasion they said no you ain't getting away with that bang you're out of the door um so you know pretty pretty unnecessary and, and how did that how did that feel uh, well I, you know i love the fbu I, even now i think it's a fantastic union it's done it's done so many good things for firefighters over the years um, in terms of improving their pay and conditions improving the fire service making people more safe through their campaigns and stuff um, and i loved i was an fbu rep for 20 years at different levels of the union i worked my way up to the national executive of the union um, and really enjoyed really enjoyed doing it and i think i was okay at it um, so yeah it was it wasn't it wasn't pleasant it was not a pleasant experience at all and it was it was unnecessary it was wrong i think most people now see it was wrong um but that was the price i paid for, for criticizing leaders of the labor movement over their position on brexit the what do you think about you know starmer at the at the moment well i've got a, a slightly nuanced opinion on him because i mean i have to say he wasn't my leader of choice i in fact i didn't i didn't in the end i didn't vote for any of the candidates because none of them well, you did. didn't want rebecca long bailey to to lead this um i i initially was very cynical about starmer quite pessimistic i kind of thought you know he's your typical north london liberal lawyer very much a blairite i felt privately um not someone who at all understood you know stoke on trent or wakefield mm. or grimsby and these sort of old red wall constituencies um and i thought yeah especially he was the architect of the second referendum policy as well was, let's not yeah. forget which was absolutely disastrous. The, the six mythical tests of brexit <laughs> all, all of this sort of stuff and and so i was i was cynical but i have to say i think he's done okay um i think he he understands i mean i i, I like the fact that he said about brexit look for christ's sake let's just get it done let's mention it as little as possible um let's just try and get it out of the way it's but a, do you understand why that's a hard pill for the corbynistas to swallow because he you, like you say he was yeah. the suddenly the geezer gets in power he's like look look what's done is done <laughs> yeah oh bloody hell sorry That's brexit brexit means brexit and I, I must admit like you know I, I had a lot of beef with the corbynistas but when you look at like they did say for a long time the blairites that if you had a blairite style leader in they'd be 20 points ahead and and that frankly hasn't hasn't happened you know i mean what where were you on, on corbyn were you were, were you I I I was not as critical as Corbyn as some people thought I should have been. Actually, um, mm. I think that on on the 
economics, I think he did a lot of good. He took Labour in a direction of, of clear opposition to austerity, um, whereas I think previous leaders had, had, had been very wishy-washy about that. I think he was prepared economically to, to challenge vested interests in a way that previous leaders weren't prepared to do. And actually, despite what people think, some of that stuff is quite popular around the country. I mean, the, the, you know, there's a big, big support out there for things like you know, redistribution of wealth for tackling regional inequalities, for tackling boardroom excesses, for a higher minimum wage and all of that sort of thing, much of which he articulated. Um, where I think he took the Labour Party further away from, from working class communities was on the cultural and, and social stuff. He did nothing to close that divide at all, which is why I say now the task for Labour is to marry that radical economic policy with the cultural politics of place and belonging. And, and as I say, I mean, I, I think Starmer has shown that he's understanding that. I mean, if you look at some of the messaging, the messaging on Brexit, I think he's right. Let's just get it out of the way. It's done. Let's just try and not mention it and, and hope it moves off the radar as soon as possible. Um, let's start pressing the buttons that people in those Red Wall constituencies like to hear. Let's start talking about things like family and nation and community and work. If you look at his conference speech he gave a couple of months ago, and it was only a speech to camera, obviously, but his mm -hmm. conference speech, concentrated heavily on all of those themes um, and I think I know for a fact that he's got some good people around him his director of policy is a woman called Claire Ainsley who's written some really good stuff around Brexit and the importance of family stuff that people on other people on the left think is intrinsically right wing um, so so I think he's done I think he's done a steady job I've been quietly impressed with some of the stuff that he's been doing and I, I say that as someone who was very cynical about his leadership most people think. you know as, as we bring in here and I know that a lot of people listening will, will already think this is the and I think this if there was more people like you as a voice in Labour politics you could win back people why why are you not in the party why are you not an MP or, or, or a figure within the, the modern Labour party um I don't think the party would have me as an MP I've got no real designs to be an MP I've got to be honest but I don't think the party would have someone like me as, a, as an MP you, you know you would need to go to You'd need to put yourself forward, throw your hat in the ring um, and go before a constituency Labour Party and convince them that you're yeah. the right person to, to represent them. And the problem is um, so many people, so many of the activists within CLPs mm. um, just hate some of the, the stuff that, that I argue. And, you know, I think would would run a mile from the idea of, of having someone like me as, as their member of parliament. Um, despite the fact that I think some of the arg arguments I articulate uh, resonate far more with, with traditional yeah. Labour voters out there and working class voters than some of the arguments they articulate. Um, so they, they kind of see things through through the prism of ideology. Um, and, you know, I think yeah, the, the thing is that we're, we're kind of a fringe tendency. We're almost like museum pieces in the party now um, because the party has shifted so much and, mm. and gone so much in favour of that cohort, that sort of middle-class metropolitan liberal activist. Um, if you stand for the, the stuff that I stand for within the party, you, you don't get very far. But it's certainly in terms of advancement, you don't get very far. Well, I, I think it's a shame, you know, because I think the one thing that people saw... You know, with Andy Burnham speaking on the on the tier system, what a difference it makes when there's a bit of passion uh, and sense of belonging. It's not Keir Starmer's fault that he's got that voice. 
you know, it's not a great voice, <laughs> but uh, communicate. Um, no, I said to you know, it's not the best for, and I'm sure that he has it in him. Elections are won and lost on the on the gut issues. You know, people think when they when they go in the ballot box, people think, you know, how is this party going to run the economy? What's it going to do in terms of my you know financial well being? How are they going to deal with issues that matter to me? You know, I've got a drug dealer at the corner of my street, and they're dabbling in drugs, keeping us awake at night. What are the Labour Party or the Tories going to do about stuff like that? What are they going to do about immigration? How are they looking after us in terms of national security? Um, you know, housing. My son can't get on the housing ladder because you know we're not building enough council houses. My mum can't get into hospital and have a hip operation because of the waiting list those are the issues so for as long as labor is talking about lgbt rights and migrant rights and gender fluidity um, and climate change and all of this stuff which which is important and i don't dismiss it it's got its place of course i mean you'd be mad not to talk about climate change for example but the problem is these these kind of middle class causes as i've described them uh, front and center of labor activists uh, activity and their beliefs um, but they're not doorstep issues and, mm. and the doorstep issues you know which people would disregard as Tory issues law and order immigration national security those are the issues that cause labor activists to stare at, their, at the ground and shuffle their feet in embarrassment and until they understand that they've got to put those issues first and their own you know pursuits second then they're never going to win back the hearts and minds of traditional working class voters. I think that that's a great place to leave it. But, but for balance, I have to echo what the Twitter reaction will be to that. Is, oh, yeah, again, Paul Embry pretending that gender fluidity isn't a priority in Sunderland. What does he know? <laughs> that's all they talk about up there. Of course. They're clamouring <laughs> for it. I know they are. <laughs> well, listen, mate, it, it's, it's a great chat. Just talk about your book again. Where should people go to get it and order it? It's, it's on sale now, unlike my book. which is on Yeah, it's, uh, it's on sale. Uh, it's available from all good booksellers. It's available, you know, in bookshops and online it's called despised why the modern left loathe the working class it's available paperback and kindle and hardback and in all different sorts of versions brilliant paul thank you so much for being on the show pleasure thanks jeff Okay, so that is the end of the chat with Paul Embry there. Do check out his book, uh, Despised. You know, I think that obviously there'll be ideas there that you'll want to pick up on and talk about. If you want to pick up on anything Paul said or anything that I've said in the podcast, it is whatmostpeoplethinkuk at gmail.com or or any letters. Do you want to discuss anything, any old bollocks? And speaking of which, let's answer a couple of letters now. Okay, the first letter is from... Who is it from? This is from Dave B., He says, I haven't heard a virtual political fight on your podcast for a while. I think a lot of the interesting bouts got done. I mean, by all means, if you want to email one in, you want me for for consideration, then do it. Um, But he says, however, given the levels of animosity in the world at the moment, and with it being Christmas and all, perhaps we should try to spread love, not war. I'm totally on board with this, Dave. So I will ask instead, not who is the hardest politician, but who is the hottest this thought process, I like, this is the way we should be talking about politics, to be honest. This thought process started because one of my left-leaning mates recently confessed to our group that his guilty pleasure is a penchant for a certain pretty Patel. Well, whose isn't, for God's sake? I'd like to... I was going to say... I'd like to... I was going to say I'd like to check out her hostile environment. That's not okay, is it? That's not okay. Um... So he says, in the interest of being totally PC, I'd like an answer for both hottest female and male. And he says, we all know you have a something of a man crush on Dishy Rishi, but is there anyone else you dream of at night? 
Well, look, you know, Rishi... So I did a bit of research on this, Dave, and I, the Daily Mail ran something about this a month ago. And I would put Dishy Rishi at the top. He's, he's a bit on the short side, but actually, surprisingly, a lot of them are. Boris Johnson, Dishy, and Keir Starmer, all quite short blokes at the moment. But Keir Starmer came second. So not only is Rishi more... More popular. Rishi's better looking. Rishi's more bangable. Yeah? Rishi life hack, I call him. He's just he's just winning at life. Whereas Kia, you know, look, I I would imagine as a woman, you'd look at Kia and go, yeah, like if I'd had a really tumultuous relationship and I just needed a solid guy who maybe didn't deliver in the bedroom, but was certainly dependable, then that's that's Keir Starmer. And a lot of women seem to like Tobias Elwood as well, this Tory MP. I had a look at him. He's another one of those ones that's a bit past me. I, I don't think he's all that. But there's, I think people, women sense his breeding. They're just smelling that money <laughs> coming off him. Um, speaking of the women, um, I think the Tories punch above their weight here. I mean, just check them out. <laughs> there's a lot. There's a lot. Um, there was, I mean, Heidi Allen before she became Change UK and then just changed into not being a politician. She was, she was an attractive woman, you know. Like, uh, Esther McVeigh, you know, a lot of people into Esther, Esther the hair McVeigh. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of younger. Um, <laughs> this is where it starts to go wrong, don't it? Just perving out. I'm not saying late. Look, Labour have got some contenders there. Rosina Allen Khan, attractive woman, it's a very pretty name, Rosina. Um, <laughs> But interestingly, um, Nicola Sturgeon came six. I'm not saying anything. I'm not saying, I didn't, you said it, I didn't say it. She came six with 4% of the vote. And 4% of the vote is, is roughly the share of the electorate that lives in Scotland. So I'm, I'm just, look, I'm not saying that those two things are connected. I'm not doubting that Nicola Sturgeon is within her own right sexy as fuck. One more letter we're doing here. This is picking up on the long running theme of the woman who started farting around her husband after several years of marriage. And we've had quite a lot of correspondence on this. This is coming from Danny, this one. He says, I'm working back through back issues and have to belatedly reply to the bloke who's upset about his wife farting in his presence. Uh, if your relationship hasn't reached the point where you can fart around each other, it's too early for marriage. That's a massive shout, Danny. Massive shout. My wife and I have been together for 22 years and have farted around each other since very early on. Although naturally I started it, well, I didn't doubt that for a second, Danny, and I've always farted a lot more than she has. Said with some pride, Danny, I quite like that. You just, you know, I'm still, I've still got to stand, I'm still a man. Do you know what I mean? Uh, it's never bothered me. Recently, she started farting a bit more often. Frankly, it makes a nice change from the belching. Well, look, Danny, whatever works for you, works for you. I just, yeah, it's, it's sexist of me. And I'm not, but that's the thing, is like, I, I, I do not... I don't fart like loads around my wife. I might let the odd one go. If I think it's got comic value, I mean, particularly one when you're on the move. I mean, that is, especially outside, the, the jeopardy's low. She's not really going to smell it. Um, you know, I, I try to be a gentleman in that respect, and I just want to nurture. I'm sorry if it's old-fashioned. The idea that women generally smell a bit nicer than men. I think, actually, they do smell a bit nicer. I mean, when you have a... Have you ever had, like, one of your, one of your mates stay over for two nights in the spare room, and you just go, oh, shit, like... That's uh, that's his musk right there. We've, we've got his musk. You don't really get that with women. I don't know if that's because women pull some shit where they're fucking like getting out little Febreze that they use, some woman Febreze that we don't know about that they carry around with them. But um, I you, I respect that you have that in your marriage, Danny. And um, may the, the farts keep... I mean, it'd be weird if like... It'd be weird if she stopped farting and that made you think something was wrong. Do you know what I mean? I think she's, I think she's farting for another man. 
Okay, that is the end of this week's podcast. As ever, if you leave me a five-star review, or why am I speaking so slow? That is the end of this week's podcast. Uh, If you leave me a five-star review on iTunes, I will read it out. I think we've got a couple this week. Let's have a look. Uh, This is from, ooh, Blondie. Um, Okay, you said Blondie, so I have to do it in in a sexist Blondie voice. I don't usually like it when Jeff has guests and sometimes don't listen to the whole episode, but really enjoyed Leo because he was so funny. Also enjoyed there being no cuss count because I find it really boring and pointless. Well, I'm I'm sorry, Blondie. I think that the majority do enjoy it, but again, what most people think, uk at gmail.com. Maybe I'll do a poll on the Patreon page, you know, a bit of market research. Um, This is from DD Yell. Uh, Jeff makes me feel there's hope that humour is still alive and kicking. He's clever, funny and sharp-witted. Saw him in Stourport last year. Bought tickets for my brother, oh, you and about six other people. <laughs> uh, bought tickets for my brother to go and see him in Reading in 2021. Go and see his show, he's awesome. He's awesome. Yeah, she's right, go and see my show. I am fucking awesome, thank you. Um, this is from, okay, this is a good one to finish with. This is from a Dutch person. He says, uh, I'm Dutch, do your worst. Okay, I'm going to read this uh, Dutch guy. Um, this is my favourite podcast. It actually make time to listen to it. It's, uh, I'm, this is obviously a Dutch guy that's had a stroke now. It's a perfect mix of solo episodes and guest episodes. Jeff is not afraid to invite, invite guests that are smarter than him. Oh, there it is. The classic Dutch guy, Slam. Yeah, this is why you guys never do well at World Cups, because you're always <laughs> so... Indi- it always has to be a falling out, doesn't there, with the Dutch lads? Uh, if you don't care for politics, this podcast told me everything I know about cricket. Well, listen, man, that is a real buzz to find out that someone uh, is listening in Holland. And we still we still love you. We love Europe. What is not to like about Holland? I mean, fuck me. Seriously, it's just it's just the EU. We're going a separate ways. And, you know, I hope we have a deal. But uh, if not, I just please let us still smoke weed in Amsterdam. That's where this was all going, basically. Please do not exclude us from one of the greatest cities on God's earth. Thank you.